irrespective. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, welcome, Alyssa. Well, first, I asked when you were talking about. You just got finished from where were you filming actually? I was filming a movie um, based on a Nora Roberts book called Brazen Virtue. And um, we were filming it for Netflix. So it'll be, oh. uh, it'll drop probably, I'm thinking the beginning of 2022. Yeah, 2022. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was a really great experience. I, I produced it and I started it and, uh, uh, we were in Canada for two months. And let me tell you, they take their COVID very seriously in <laughs> Canada. We had to quarantine for two weeks where we could not leave the house that we were renting. Wow. So it was my husband, me, and my, my two kids and a puppy, a German Shepherd puppy. And um, they have people that come to the door and they're like, hey, knock, knock. We're just making sure you're complying with the you know, two-week lockdown mandatory quarantine. I mean, it was really hardcore. And then they they um, they trace you no matter where you go. So if you were going to go to, a, you know, a restaurant for dinner, they take down your number. Wow. Um, you know, in case anyone who was also eating dinner in that same place uh, gets COVID, they then call you and let you know that you were in contact with. I mean, they, they were really hardcore about it. No, I could. Well, I've seen so many of the productions that have, I mean, well, great you could get that done because I mean, a lot of times that's 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 a, a miracle in itself. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know if we were going to be able to uh, to get it done because it was a pretty long shoot. Like two months is a long shoot, and um, you know, they tell you they they test you every day, and they tell you at any point if you're in if an actor or the director, everybody's in zones. <laughs> So I was part of the red zone, right? So they tell you if anyone in the red zone, you know, gets COVID and, and is te test positive, then um, we shut down for, for two weeks. And we thought for sure, we were like, there's no way we're going to go this whole two months without someone, you know, getting COVID. But, you know, there was a mutual respect there. There was a, um, an understanding that if one person got sick, you were, you were, impacting the livelihood of everyone in the crew right because people depend on that yeah. that money and getting paid um so it was really quite interesting and, and much different than what you know i've experienced here for the last nah well know? congratulations that's that's a that is a uh that's an accomplishment i guess if you, if you think about that because i know as you are an actress and an activist how how hard is it going to be for your fellow actors to bounce back, even though like in Broadway, to like do who want to be activists, but still when this work has kind of gotten really tight post-COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard and we don't have uh, sort of the security blankets that other countries have put forth, right? So, um, you know, there are different organizations um, for my industry that are raising money for people that have been out of work. Uh, because as you mentioned, theater is a great example because um, theater is, there's nothing going on. You know, there is no way to um, get people in an audience. 
uh, until the infection rate goes down almost to zero. Hmm. So, um, you know, we were we did have a bit of uh, the COVID relief package from the government. Um, but, you know, other countries um, like Canada, for instance, they actually paid people to stay home um, in the beginning of this. And and, you know, I, I have to say it really did have an impact not only on the economy you're seeing here where a lot of small businesses have, have had to shut down. But in Canada, not only is everything open well where i was vancouver ontario is a uh, they're going through it right now but um in vancouver and bc uh all the businesses were still open uh mm. because they took it so seriously in the beginning and also they paid people to stay home so people um had the luxury of of you know waiting really waiting and making sure that the virus was un under control before they opened the economy back up um you know, and I think that that made a big difference in everyone's just mental capacity, right? And especially young, young kids. I mean, in Vancouver, young kids are going to school with, uh, with no masks. And, you know, mm. um, my kids are still not in school here in California. So it's, I think, going to be interesting. I think nothing is ever going to be the same. And I think that's especially true for the entertainment industry. I think, I don't know how we get film production, um, meaning film production, not on, on streamers, but film production that would normally be released in a movie theater. It's going to be really hard. I'm not so sure people want to go sit in a movie theater. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, that was already in the decline because of, um, you know, the gun violence that has taken place in movie theaters and just not feeling safe. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, the, the entertainment industry has always been able to bounce back. We're real good at get, getting creative and trying to figure out um, how to accommodate um, giving people entertainment uh, and, and still working in, a, in, a, in an environment that is conducive to success. Um, you know, but it's definitely going to be a transition period, I think. You know, yeah. Movie theaters are closing. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what we also have to remember that I think is really important that a lot of people don't remember is that arts and entertainment are the second largest export from the United States. So that's a pretty big deal. That is a big deal. I actually didn't know that. That's a, you you I, I got I got my fun fact today on that one. Yeah. The <laughs> second largest export, the first being agriculture. Um, and the second be, I mean, it used to be cars, right? But we've closed so many of our, our car plants, but yes, it entertain arts and entertainment are the second largest export, um, in the United States. So we, you know, we'll figure it out. That's the, the good thing about arts and entertainment is, um, yeah. we're made up of a really creative, uh, group of people that, uh, have had to overcome so much diversity um, um, not diversity, um, adversity, um, uh, you know, not only within the industry, but also personal adversity. I mean, most artists um, that I know of have had to overcome something in their lives, which is what makes them, you know, a, a little, a little uh, crazy enough to, to be in this business. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Well, listen, we just hop right into it, talking shop and, 
I guess, first of all, thank you for being here on The Coolest Show. Thank you for, I mean, how can you turn down an invitation to be on The Coolest Show? Well, there it is. You know, well, it's, it's you know, we're talking climate and, and arts and coolness and all that good stuff. And, but thank you. I just want to tell you, thank you also. I, you were inspiring when you were sitting up there in Capitol Hill, when you weren't producing and shooting movies. You were sitting up there raising hell, something that, I know very well, but you were doing it. It was great to see you doing that. And it really inspired a lot of us uh, to see you there poking your head out on, on Capitol you. Hill. Thank you. In um, doing that. But for folks who don't know you, because I know you're an artist and producer and activist and all those amazing things, uh, who is Alyssa Milano? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um. I'd like to think that how per people perceive me is is who I truly am because I'm I, I I've never been able to um, you know to put forth an idea of who I am and I think a lot of people respond to how um, organic I am uh, as a as a person um, but really uh, I'm pretty I'm a pretty basic person I'm someone who who cares about the world and making it just and and equitable for everyone who lives here. Um, I've been an, a working actress since I was seven years old, which is crazy to think about. <laughs> I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm an author. Um, I'm an activist, a humanist. Um, and, you know, I think I'm a little bit of, of everything people perceive me to be. Um, and, and, you know, I am who I am. And, I, and I've never been able to fake it. Um, people kind of see right through it. Let's talk a little climate, you know, okay. I guess. Let's talk talk that. Uh, um, first of all, Vancouver is amazing. Vancouver, people who don't know. If you haven't been to Vancouver, and after all this craziness is over, if you can get to Vancouver, yeah, actor or no actor, for those who are listening, Vancouver, uh, uh, Vancouver. I, went, I actually went to Vancouver and had to go on, uh, those little islands next to Vancouver that you had to catch a the ferry, little, sea, little yeah, that little sea Victoria plane. or Vancouver Island, yeah, 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 little seaplane. That wasn't fun. That was fun. The seaplane <laughs> was a little was a little <laughs> hairy. Scary to me. I've never been on one of those. <laughs> that was a little hairy, but uh, yeah. Um, but what do you think of climate? Yeah, um, or the climate movement? What comes mm. to mind? Really, I think what comes to mind is uh, two futures. You know, do we do we keep screwing up the way we always have been screwing up, right? Or do we uh, really start working to to get it right? Um, and do we see climate justice, which is incredibly important, in a world really that is sustainable for everyone? Or do we see, um, you know, rich, uh, mostly white countries continue to uh, just plunder and exploit, you know, at the expense of everyone else? Um, but I really think that the climate movement, when you when you ask about what I think of the movement, I think it's the thing that can really um, tip the balance to the good here. Um, you know, the, the sort of entrenched forces of our uh, broken capitalism, you know, are the things that really can tip it 
in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And when you think about not just the movement, the groups in the movement, mm-hmm. um, and let me, well, I don't want to preface that. I want you just to, I guess, to say what you, what do you think? And then, it will, and then we'll have a conversation about what you think. But when you think of the groups in the movement, um, what, do you, what comes to mind? And also, what would you want to see? Uh, that's a that that's a really good question, and that would go to um, the the movement at large. But I think, as far as organizations goes, I, I think there's a lot of really great organizations, a, a lot of really great youth activists um, that are doing really important work in this space. Uh, but also, I think we have a lot of champions who are elected officials. Mm. who who are doing really important things. I love, love, love Ed Markey. And I think what he's doing in the Senate is really important. Um, I love the work that, that Van Jones does uh, with Green for All. Um, and also I look at organizations like the Sunrise Movement um, and the incredible work that they're doing uh, and, and, you know, really not taking no for an answer. Um, and then, you know, there's these incredibly fierce, inspiring, awesome youth activists in this space, Mm. um, you know, who are doing incredible work, Bill McKibben and his group, um, 350.org, uh, who are taking environmental activism really to the bottom lines of corporations that fund climate change, which I think is another aspect of this that we can still use a lot of work in uh, and I think they're they're on track now as far as what I think that these or what the movement at large is all about I think when you think about progressive policy and really what uh, we're fighting for um, not only with climate but also outside of climate Mm-hmm. I get concerned because I feel like there are so many organizations doing such good work in this in these spaces, but I worry that they're not um, speaking to each other as much as they should. What do you mean? Well, I think that they all function as their own as their own entity mm. um, instead of you know, power in numbers and sort of coming together. And we see it a lot. You know, I have this this uh, gun violence prevention org that me and Ben Jackson started called uh, No RA, where mm-hmm. we really, after Parkland, tried to take a chunk out of the power that the NRA had. Uh, and I think we've been really successful in that. But even if you're looking at the GVP movement, the gun violence prevention movement, there are all these incredible organizations. The problem is, is, I fear that because all of these organizations fundraise and are all competing for the same donor dollars, mm-hmm. it's not as, it should be moving as a single movement, but it feels very uh, like there's too many moving parts and that everyone doesn't get on the same page. And that is my biggest concern. And I think that that's why it is so important that we have elected officials that can sort of shape, um, you know, the, the umbrella of what each of these issues means. And I think when you look at people like AOC and again, Senator Markey and, and how they're taking their lead from these organizations, 
um, then it enables all of us as, as sort of activists on the periphery to, to, you know, to know where we're going and what we should be fighting for. But otherwise, I just get concerned that they're all fighting for the same donor dollars and mm. everyone is, is moving in the space in a very um, individual capacity. And that, that freaks me out a little bit. If I'm being totally honest. No, but that, listen, that, that is that is the coolest show. That's how we right. that's how we roll here. That's the, it's the, and I think and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, people are always like, why don't you pick a focus? <laughs> because I'm I'm everywhere. But I I I I, I don't want to pick a focus. I think where I am most useful is where I am needed in that moment. And yeah, it means that I have to do a little bit of extra work and research because I don't have a specialty that I dive into, but I think it's worth it to be able to, you know, not work for one organization, but to be able to say, you know what, I love what Sunrise is doing here. I love what, what, uh, you know, the Sierra Club is doing here and be able to lend my name where it's needed. No, nah, and, and what you say is very important. And I guess, you know, what you're talking about, I, I know you actually work on a lot of different things. You work on, obviously, there is um, working on gun violence and gun gun reform. You're working on women's rights. You're working on climate. You're working on clearly a number of issues. That would make it an intersectional, intersectional uh, yes. movement, right? And so you're you're right on point. That's actually a good thing. Yeah, I, I think so too. Thank you. No, no, you are. You are. You're right. You're right there. The thing that's there, and I think I, I'm I'm intrigued because you are also what, what people would call a doer, donor, producer. You you do three things. In other words, you are you can produce obviously content for the movement, or you're out there in the streets and the suites. Mm. You're obviously you if you see it fit, you you will donate to groups you want to support. And then also you're a doer, because you'll get out there and make it happen. I'm yeah. I'm intrigued though by that because what you're saying is that our groups trying to vie for your attention and in vying for your attention and others, not you, but donors and whoever, you know, they feel has a platform to help them move things along. Will that then cause them to marginalize others you may not see? In other words, will that then create a situation where they may feel either I'm marginalized or be marginalized? And so to get in front of Alyssa, I need to then kind of push down Maybe even those who are actually doing the work. No, I don't think it's that. I, th I don't think it's that. I think it is, first of all, I will always take a back seat to the organizers that are specializing in these issues, right? Um, uh, because th they've dedicated their life's work to that. Like this for me is just part of who I am. It's what is the most fulfilling thing in my life. Um, I don't know how to in my head, uh, marry, you know, being a celebrity without using my voice. I think it's such a waste of a platform. Hmm. And I think organizations know that um, to reach out to me if they need if they need something and whether that be, you know, money or need me to show up in D.C. and go lobby for something. Um, but I always, always, always am mindful of I'm there as a representative of whatever organization I'm there with. Um, and also the, the people that I'm there fighting for, hmm. you know, and I really try to take myself out of the equation and be, um, 
be a vessel, be, be, you know, a bridge between, between those that, that don't have the capacity to, you know, get a meeting with Senator Markey um, and myself, right? I always try to bring uh, when I'm lobbying on the Hill, I always try to bring in, if I can't get people um, specifically from their, you know, district, um, I bring in people from the organization that are literally doing this work every single day. Um, and I think that that's what is, that's my position. My fear is, is the, the competition within the organizations. Mm. So meaning, you know, you've got, you've got no RA, right, which is my GVP, and then you've got Brady, right? Like the person that is going to sit at home and be moved enough by the gun violence problem in America and make a donation, probably not going to donate to both organizations. And so that's what I mean by competing for all the same donor dollars is you have these all of these incredible organizations that instead of working together to fix a problem, they look at each other as competition, mm -hmm. even if they're in the same issue. And that concerns me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense, and it's yeah. and 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 I and I uh, I agree. I, but it's also it's a, as you can imagine, it's a big problem. Yeah, and it's not coalition building. And as far yeah. as <laughs> I'm concerned, like the coalitions are really what what make things work. Now, I I come at this from a, a, a sort of different angle because I've been an ambassador for UNICEF since 2003. That's right. Um, Congratulations. Yes, indeed. Th thank you. It's yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing, but when you see how many organizations have to come together for global effort, you there is no I mean, you talk about coalition building. They, UNICEF can't do it without WHO, WHO can't do it without, you know, uh, the UN Refugee um, Council. So there, there is nothing that is singular about our efforts to make sure that children have healthy, safe childhoods. We understand that it takes many organizations to come together to, mm. to achieve that goal. Um, so I, you know, and that's a very, you know, globalist mentality, right? So of course, of course that makes sense. And we're, we're in a very divided, divisive mentality in this country. Mm -hmm. So how we run these movements and these, these issue-based orgs, um, you know, I fear work in, in the same capacity. And I would also say that a lot of these organizations, when they throw their weight behind a candidate leading up to a primary, then they're identified with that candidate and it becomes real tribal at that point. You know, it becomes, you know, uh, more like you're rooting for your favorite baseball team rather than actually coming together to solve the problems of this country, which I think we can all agree are undeniably huge and takes all of us, takes all of these these uh, organizations. So to me, I think coalition building is is incredibly important, and we've got to get to that place. Um, you know, as organizers and activists that are that are moving in these spaces to to really do that work. I'm curious, uh, Alyssa. One of the things as you're talking, 
because I also, you know, I'm I'm in your world as well a little bit. Yeah. Work with celebrities and obviously music side probably more so, but the the hip hop side and 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 I'm curious as you're talking because I agree with you. I think that we cannot succeed as a siloed, progressive, segregated movement. We can't yeah. win. We have to come together to win. Where our enemy sometimes is the exact same entity or yes. organization. Yes. So we have. So they can figure out how to be unified. So, but so this is the thing. So let me give you an example. For instance, so as you know, I I did the vote or die campaign with mm-hmm. Diddy. I helped to co-create that. And when we would go out to communities, people, everybody would want to speak to Diddy. Everybody, it would, nobody would want to speak to me. They'd all want to speak to, they would all want to, they, they would knock me down and trample yeah, me. Yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> to I, to, to I, get I, to, which is good, because I was actually, that's 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 Diddy, uh, right. an, another fellow Howard, Howard, Howard guy. We, we did this Howard University thing, but but uh, he's, <laughs> but uh, we, that bring him up, because the one thing that he was good at when we were working together that time is that I noticed that a lot of the big organizations wanted to be close to Diddy, right? Mm-hmm. And they would also knock over the grassroots people. And what happened there, the grassroots people would be upset because then these big organizations would figure out how to get close. And I'm sure you're the exact same way, right? Mm-hmm. They would they get right to you. And then you're then hearing people being disgruntled. Ah, she ain't really down with this, or did ain't really down. Like, what? I was here. What, what do you mean I'm not down? I showed up. I was right. Right. I was right. I was right okay. here, because there's a disconnect, and that's what I guess I want to get to. So right now, the groups you mentioned are, are all fine groups, but there's a whole nother layer of groups that are also working. I'm sure you notice as well in other groups. Who is around you? Who is I guess. To get past them, do you have anybody around you that helps you? Your your rev that gets trampled. Who is who is that person or or, or entity <laughs> I, that helps you? I'm to... I'm usually that person. <laughs> I'm usually the one that gets trampled to get to someone else, right? <laughs> um, but no, I think I think part of the reason why I'm effective and impactful is that everyone knows how to get in touch with me. So, so nobody's going through anyone else. Occasionally I will get an email from my publicist saying, look, the ACLU in Virginia is working on a case and they'd love if you sent out a tweet or something like that. But really, um, a lot of the work I do is, is recognizing grassroots work and just DMing them and saying, or, or, you know, finding out emails and saying, hey, look, how, how can I help you with this? And sometimes that help isn't even in, in, like people aren't even aware. Sometimes that's making a connection behind the scenes with, um, you know, a donor or, uh, you know, a doctor that can try to get oxygen t- tanks into India. I mean, there's so much work that I do behind the scenes. Um, for these grassroots organizations. And listen, there is nothing and there is no more important person in trying to get this country on track than those that are doing the work on a grassroots level. Mm. None. Unless you are someone that, you know, and, and I have certainly, when I've had time, been able to do this, 
But unless you have the time to go deep into areas and do truly deep, deep canvassing, right? Like for, for instance, um, you know, I worked in Georgia for two years on Insatiable. And there was so much good trouble to get into it in Georgia. You know, it was when they were trying to, to pass the, uh, the heart, the quote unquote heartbeat bill. They had just um, like a year before fought against the religious liberty bill. It, it just seemed like, you know, Stacey Abrams had the election stolen from her. It just seemed like there was always uh, something going on that was riddled with um, corruption and and awfulness in Georgia. Um, and there, because I was there for two years, I was able to deep canvas and I was able to get to know people and knock on doors and, and do that real personal, um, that personal thing that I think is so important in convincing, I shouldn't say convincing, in, in making people aware that you do see eye to eye regardless of if there's a D or an R next to the candidate's name, right? And there's no one that does that better than grassroots organizers. No one, no one, no one, no one. So um, yeah, I hear you. And I think that uh, there can be times, and I've had to definitely learn to be more conscious about what is what I'm doing helpful to this grassroots organizer or this grassroots organization? Or in the long run, is it hurtful? Mm. And I try very, very hard. And by the way, this was, this was, these are lessons that I work on every day, but I've tried very, very hard to, um, to take my cues from what they need, what they need on the ground, what they need as far as funding, what they need uh, as far as uh, marketing materials, or if I could help put a toolkit together and, um, you know, distribute that in, in my circle of influencers, uh, if I could get, you know, someone like Mark Ruffalo onto a letter, um, you know, for Alabama, you know, whatever, whatever it is, so much of what I do is behind the scenes. And I'm very, very conscious of the fact that people do this work every day and it's not up to me to come in and, um, and take, and, and take, uh, the glory away from them because they deserve it. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I appreciate that approach. Um, I think there, I, 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 I believe, and you mentioned Brother Mark Ruffalo, and, and that's, mm -hmm. shout, out to, shout out to Mark and, and this process and many others, um, Regina, and just the whole crew over there and many other groups who are doing this work um, from Hollywood or from wherever. Um, but I think there's something there where we see in the 60s where celebrities like Harry Belafonte, mm -hmm. Eartha Kitt, even Jane Fonda, mm. that those, all those who were back then, it seems like they were much more in, in, engaged. In other yeah. words, there was, I, I, agree with what you're saying, but they also held accountable to movement. I mean, they were like, hey, if you're not doing something right. That's interesting. They would, they would, they would speak out and say, could they, I guess maybe because they felt they were really entangled. Do you feel you can speak out or do you feel like it would be backlash? 
from both, I guess, from where. Well, I mean, from. I've never really allowed the fear of backlash <laughs> to stop me from doing <laughs> anything. Like I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, uh, fearless as far as back. I mean, I've been canceled. So they've been trying to cancel me since the '80s. So, and that's what I say all the time. But I do think what is different, and and you know, thank you for bringing this up because I do think it's an important point. I do think what there's a few things going on. I think, first of all, you have celebrities that are buying into this idea that that the Republicans have have sort of um, optimized, which is that if you're a celebrity, you should stay in your lane and you shouldn't have opinions on on political um, issues. And I think that that was a narrative that the GOP started because we had all of these incredible people um, in progressive movements that were fighting for for justice and fighting for climate justice and fighting for racial justice and fighting fighting for gender equity and equality. Um, so I think that they they spun it to make us look like we are not worthy to have opinions. And I think that. Therefore, there are a lot of celebrities that fear a certain amount of um, backlash. And I got to tell you, it drives me nuts that I could know a person and reach out to that person for whether it be signing a petition or ask them to come on a Zoom with me because I know this issue is important to them, whatever it is. And have them say, you know what, I'm just not comfortable doing that. Mm. You know, and I think that it is a real, well, first of all, I think that in, in my industry, money is such a, a big part of um, how we equate success. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are, uh, there are celebrities that are terrified to uh, be less successful because they have a voice. Because listen, I lose endorsements. I lose, you know, commercial opportunities. But I, I just, I, like, how much more mo money does someone need? You know, if you're making $10, 15000000 million a picture, as some of these people that I'm talking about do, like, so, so what? Like, you alienate, I don't know, 10% of your audience and you're still making a lot of money, <laughs> you know? And I think, I hope if my activism has proven anything to the people who might fear getting involved, it's that you can have a successful career um, and still fight for what's important. Uh, you might not be as, uh, there, there might be certain people that don't, um, respond to what you're doing, but I've never lost a, a job in television or film because I'm outspoken. Mm. I've, lo I've lost endorsement money. I've lost uh, commercial money. Um, but as far as being a creative artist, uh, I actually think I've gotten more opportunity. Um, so so it, it's really upsetting and I, he I hear you. I really do. But, you know, I think people from both sides that that are firmly, uh, firmly believe something um, get, you know, get backlash. And the, the thing that, that I that I worry about the most, I have to tell you, is not 
it doesn't pertain to me and my success. It pertains to the idea that there could be a young actress or actor mm -hmm. who looks at my Twitter account and, and sees all that I fight for and then clicks on one of those tweets and sees the way people respond to it who are in opposition of, you know, things like equality. Um, and that it will, they will then become afraid mm -hmm. to be outspoken because of the backlash I receive. Because then there's a whole generation of, of young activists that, that maybe won't, you know, flourish. Um, you know, I did have, uh, I, I grew up with 60s parents who raised me to be really politically, uh, not only aware, but responsible and told me that I always had to use my voice. You know, even if I, if I wasn't an actor, that if I saw something, I had to say something. So it's a different, if it's a different time. And by the way, now with the pandemic and so few jobs going back, I don't think that that gets any easier. But like you said, there are a handful of really incredible people who, um, who are in, who are in the, the industry that uh, are fearless. People like Mark Ruffalo, Deborah Messing, Shailene Woodley, um, you know, really incredible, incredible activists that um, are fearless. What do, we think, what do you think we need to do in Hollywood to help us work together? Because sometimes when I'm either in L.A. or New York or even when I'm in D.C., it seems like even in the arts, and it seems crazy because the one thing about the arts is that that can help overcome so much. Everything. Yeah, it, arts helps you overcome, you know, you could be black, white, brown, red, male, female, straight, gay, theist, atheist. Arts helps, helps us to be human, right? And right. so that's, but sometimes when I see us on these issues, I still see a lot of white artists who are doing one set of kind of organizing and black and brown and indigenous artists over doing something else. How, how, do, we, how do we break that segregation down within our own entertainment? And be really honest with you, and you're absolutely right. And first of all, I just want to say out loud that arts, every time a Republican is elected into office, uh, the arts is really the first thing that they try to cut from the budget, the National Endowment of Arts, of the arts. Um, and that's why before when I said that the arts are the second largest export, hmm. um, that's, you know, I work with a, a group called the Creative Coalition, and that's the talking point we always go to, because that's what people who, um, who you know, are capitalists seem to respond to. Um, but not only that, uh, you're, you're right. And I think that this exists a little bit in, in the, uh, organizing space as well. I think, I think that white people are afraid to, to get it wrong mm. and they're afraid to fail publicly. And I think it prevents, um, people from coming together in a way, you know, and, and we're seeing it right now in um, a little bit in this idea that, and it's a very, I think, an old way of thinking about hate, because <laughs> uh, I've done quite a bit of 
thought on this, right? I think before Trump, you were able to, if you were a hateful person, you were able to sort of figure out what your focus of hate is going to be on, right? So there were organizations like the neo-Nazis that were uh, anti-Jewish um, or the KKK, who was anti-Black. And there were very distinct, if you were going to hate, you, you got to pick who you were going to hate. The thing to me that is so terrifying about this day and age is that all those hate groups are now one hate group, right? They're now QAnon. They, QAnon has become this umbrella, basically, for hate and also organizing for hate. So they're saying, you know what? We don't care who you hate. You just come hate with us. Let's all hate together. <laughs> and that's the first time that I think that that has happened, right? Where there is a bigger entity than just these, um, you know, and, and what it has done is it is, you know, there's estimated to be somewhere between four and eight million people in this country that believe in in QAnon's bullshit. I mean, that's terrifying. But mm. when you think about it, it's it is the Ku Klux Klan. It is the neo-Nazis. It is the Proud Boys. It is. And they're all they're all the same group now. So they have so we have to do that because the only way we're going to be able to fight that, in my opinion, is if we do come together. And, you know, white people just need to fucking buck up. Sorry, can I curse on this show? You can't actually. It's a podcast. Okay, great. <laughs> um, uh, they need to buck up and, and not worry about if they're going to mess up because what's the worst that happens? You mess up. I've messed up many a times in public and you learn and you mess up better the next time right? You mess up less the next time. Um, but I think that really prevents a lot of people from working in the racial justice space is, uh, you know, I think w white people are, are terrified of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Um, so they're just quiet about it, you know, but I, I think white people need to organize against uh, racism more so. Like we we need to be the ones that that organize against racism because it's our people that are, uh, you know, causing the the pain. But we need to take our leads from the black organizers in the space, right? Because they're closest to the pain. Hmm. Actually, what you're saying is is very important. Let me ask you this question on that because if we know that white people are afraid sometimes to be said a wrong thing. Um, and we know that the issue is embedded in white supremacy and in racism. Um, doesn't that then lead to white flight in a situation where then white people would then not want to deal with that issue anymore once race is involved? Well, I think we've been dealing with white flight for hundreds of years right yeah no i mean yeah, we have 100 you know we we have we have right? we have, I mean, we have. But i'm saying like within our movement i'm saying that within our in our in our in our in our in our our, our gun gun reform yeah. and our climate and our anti-war criminal justice criminal justice once yeah. we 
once the issue goes beyond just being the issue and it really is embedded into race and black liberation and brown liberation, once it goes deeper to that, does that then make it harder, I mean, from your opinion, for people to kind of stick around? Or what What can we do to ensure that they stay around? Or, or, or is it important they stay around? I think what we need to all do, and these are, these are, you know, this, I think, spans all the issues that we're talking about, is we need to meet people where they are and shape the narrative in a way where people can understand that we're all fighting against some kind of oppression. Hmm. And that because of that, that, you know, whether it's misogyny, whether it's sexism, whether it's xenophobia, whether it's homophobia, um, whether it's racism, uh, we're we're all fighting against the hierarchy, and these are these are not things that are exclusive to what what you are and what you're fighting against. Because honestly, the person that is going to uh, be racist, you know, probably is also going to be misogynist, hmm. right? So, in my perspective, and this is kind of like a very sort of um, a feminist way of looking at it is we need to fight all oppression and we need to figure out how to get rid of this system in this country that functions with a hierarchy. Um, because, you know, if, if you're not free, I'm not free. And I think we really have to start start looking at this um, in that capacity. And by the way, it is all, I think, a white supremacy um, that we need to chip away at. And I think that's why, you know, we're seeing uh, so many anti-voting bills popping up at the same time as, or, or, you know, voting bills on a state level that are trying to, uh, you know, keep people of color from, from being able to vote. But we're also seeing all of these transphobic bills at the same time. And we're seeing these heartbeat bills at the same time. So they're trying to oppress everyone at once. And until we realize that I'm not free until you're free, and you're not free until I'm free, nothing's going to change. What's your plan to call <laughs> in or call out? Um, white people on issues you have stood up for, like reparations and other roles like that, and understand that the role of the police, especially as more folks wake up to the realization that police control large sums of money, the numbers prove they don't protect people, how, and even or other issues that we've been talking about. What, 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 what plan do you have that you can say, hey, I was talking to Rev, we had this really, really good conversation on the coolest show. Uh, we need to have our own meeting to deal with what reparations and black liberation and justice and police look like. First. So there's there's a few things. Um, 
first of all, uh, I work with an organization that I really believe in and, and any white people listening to this episode um, of The Coolest Show should check them out. They're called Surge, S-U-R-J, Showing Up for Racial Justice. Mm. And it was basically founded um, by uh, white women who decided that they needed to organize their own to help with this issue. And the work they do is truly incredible. And so um, actively, I mean, I've, I've set up with my influencer group uh, meetings where Surge comes and talks about, you know, uh, racism, talks about lifting up black voices and, and brown voices, talks about um, different ways that people can get involved. So I would highly recommend uh, signing up for their newsletter. Um, I think it's Surge, S-U-R-J.org. I really believe in this organization and the work that they're doing. Um, I'm not a big believer in calling people out. Um, I think that, you know, well, it's clinically proven that when you call people out, your reward center in your brain <laughs> is lit up. And so you think that you're doing something that is beneficial or powerful. I don't, I don't believe that publicly calling someone out um, is effective. I do believe in, though, reaching out to someone personally and saying, you know what, when you tweeted this or when you said that or, uh, you know, when you tweeted that picture, um, I feel that it's hurtful in the following ways. And and most of the time doing it that way, you get it like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like I didn't even think of it that way. Rather than if you do it publicly and people dig their heels in because they feel ashamed that they were to make that mistake. Um, and I do think it is up to us as white people uh, to, to have these conversations. Um, there's never a, a, a day that doesn't arise where the opportunity to discuss um, microaggression or, or uh, um, you know, racist beliefs doesn't arise. Um, and so I think it's really, it's, it's really up to us to call, to call people in and to, to say, you know what, that feels like a microaggression to me. Um, maybe, we, maybe we rephrase it a certain way. Um, and, you know, uh, in that capacity, I feel like everyone, everyone has that responsibility. Every white person has the ability to organize within their community, within their group of, of, of people, within their, their tribe. Um, and also we, we need to do a better job at raising our kids, um, just with the understanding that it's, it's not okay. Well, listen, I just have two more questions. I thank you. We just, obviously, this has became a very deep uh, and, and insightful conversation um, <laughs> uh, here. I, I, I kind of want to ask you, like, I, I want to hope with my lap. I'm trying to think of a good, like, fun, cool question at the end. Yeah, I wanna, please, I, please. I, I, so, so, I'm, so, the, so the first one is, is, is I want, is a, it will be not so, a little hard. Second one will be a little easy and cool, so I will do that. So the okay. first, so this one will be maybe uh, it's it's in line with what we've been talking about, but I think it'll be important for our, our listeners who are listening to us right now. Mm -hmm. So right now, let me, I, and I think it's it's my job to give you this because I think it's I, I want you to have this information. 
Okay. That's 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 important for you to store in your in your toolbox. So, as you know, those who are first and worst impacted by the climate crisis are poor, um, black, brown, and indigenous communities. Right. Those who are dying because of dirty water and dying because of uh, lack of clean air um, are those same communities. There's no waiting to the happens. It's, it's happening right now. We saw That's it in right. Texas. Mm-hmm. Little children um, were freezing to death. Uh, we see it obviously in your state of California with the wildfires. We see those who are, who are fleeing, particularly those who don't have resources, who can't rebuild. Um, and on, I can go on and on and on of the crisis we're dealing with. I saw it in my, in my home state of Louisiana with Hurricane Katrina, and I can go on and on and on, particularly um, how this impacts particularly poor people, um, and that includes white, black, brown, but particularly black and brown and indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. This is the, the question. This kind of goes back to the earlier, and I want you to kind of revisit your thoughts. Yes. One of the things here, as you mentioned earlier, were these these groups that are doing the work, and thank goodness they're doing the work. We want them to do the work. But there's a sometimes this competition. As you think about it now after our conversation, do you see a danger that these groups may actually use their privilege to work with your privilege? to block out BIPOC communities. In essence, like literally, they are, they are not allowing for you to really get to, like you're not able, like the fact that we're having this conversation is amazing. And hopefully mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll keep having a bunch of these conversations. But I think that if you're not having these conversations, then you're, then you're, not, actually, you're not actually doing the work that you think you should be doing with the people you are. It's dangerous because if people of color are dying and particularly white groups are blocking, does that make you almost implicit in what's happening to not be successful? In other words, what, what ways can we change this so that you are not listening and seeing great stories or great presentations from those who have the resources and privilege, but we're actually solving the problem. So yeah. babies aren't freezing to death or having asthma and cancer. Privilege plus privilege equals oppression. That's right. Let's solve the problem. You know, and I think part of this uh, is basically because we have a government that doesn't function the way it's supposed to. Um, but look, I mean, w- what you're talking about all of this is interconnected, right? And so when you look at something like climate justice, um, what happens with our climate affects each of us. And I feel like the way we live and use our planet is, is personal. It is about our ethics, right? And, and really how we treat each other and view one another. Um, and I feel like climate justice is really how, how we make sure that those effects of, of climate change and all the environmental destruction that you mentioned cannot impact the poorest people. Also, the nations 
the poorest nations. And individuals, the ones that are least able to manage its effects, right? While the rich, uh, you know, you know, those of us who contribute way more than our share to the causes of climate change, just continue to just cruise right along without much impact at all, right? And I think that's what you're saying. Um, but climate justice, I think, should be the factor that reminds us all that we are on a planet, not an island, and certainly not an island of, of privilege. The fact that there are, and it's all interconnected. I mean, the fact that there are 14 million children in this country that don't have enough food to eat or that live near a food desert that can't get fresh produce because in their area, they only have a convenience store. And guess what? That same area off, offset lead into the water because the pipes are so old. And so now these children have lead poisoning. What's the one thing? Lead poisoning is not curable, but what's the one thing that helps it? Nutrition fruit and vegetables. There are children in Michigan who have to get a prescription for fruits and vegetables to help with their lead poisoning. Mm. Think about that. Mm. And so all of this comes from a system of systemic everything, white supremacy, and we all need to do our part to fight against it and to educate ourselves and empower those around us to make really important choices in the polling booths. And guess what? We just had this election. Joe Biden's in office. We're still celebrating. Hmm. What do you think the other side is doing? They started to get to work immediately. We have to stop being so reactionary. There is no time we get to relax because when we relax, that's when we lose. We need to keep organizing and we need to keep striving and hoping for a brighter tomorrow and putting those things that we know we can do in our own personal way to start to get that ball rolling. Um, because no country should be living, no, no country that is the richest country in the world, or one of them, I don't even know if we are anymore the richest, we should not have 14 million kids that don't have access to good nutrition. Well, I promise you a fun question. <laughs> I thought that was the fun question. That's that, not well, a fun question? I had fun yeah, Well, it was fun to me. I, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it, that's for sure. I, I, I tell you. But I guess this is the more... Uh, uh, more relaxed question. Let's say like that. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe isn't as relaxed. But I, I think it's relaxed. Just what, what, what does success? What, what keeps you hopeful? And um, when you get ready to throw down, uh, you know, you're ready to go. You, you got to do some, some, some very powerful action. What do you, what do you put on? Like what? What's your go-to song to get you fired up, uh, to get you ready? Beyonce. 
Anything Beyonce. Anything Beyonce. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm I'm right now going through a a really big Beyonce uh, time in my life. There's just something that feels empowering about listening to her. Um, but you know, success. I don't really know that I'm the type of person that could ever just be like, okay, yeah, I've I've done it. I'm feeling success at this point in my life, right? You, you know, I think that there's always, I, I was actually, oddly enough, just having this conversation with my, my a very, very kind therapist the other day. And he was like, you know, I think it's okay if you look around and, and just appreciate the victories. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can do that. It doesn't feel like I can do that because it feels like there's always work to be done. But, you know, I think that, that we're, we all find fulfillment in different ways um, and we all find hope from different places. And most of my hope comes, uh, you know, from my, my children. Um, they give me a lot of hope. Mm. The, the way in which they see the world mm. um, teaches me, really, uh, almost daily, the things that they say, the things that they are able to comprehend um, is, is powerful to me. And they also have this way of just breaking down these things that I think are such massive issues to just the simplest form, which is like, we need to be good to each other, you know? Um, so yeah, so I get, I get a lot of hope from my kids. Mm. Uh, and, then, you know, I'm hopeful that like, the things like this conversation give me hope. You know, the fact that we're th saying things out loud. Yeah. That gives me hope. Nah. You well, give me hope. Well, my sister, thank you. Uh, yeah, this was a hopeful, very hopeful conversation. And thank you for being our guest today. Of course. It was my, it was my absolute honor and uh, privilege. And thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity. Nah, thank and you. Sharing, that... sharing your mic with me. Yeah, yeah, you no. have to come on my podcast. Yes, yes, that's got it. So we got it. That's a that's a done deal. Okay, and good. you can and you can ask me hard and fun questions. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> and you know what? Call on me if I can ever be of service to you. Nah, nah, I think I think we're going to need a lot of us to come together to be successful. Well, I'm right by your side. Thank you, my sister. Thank that's, you. That's that's our guest today. She is actress and activist Alyssa Milano, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you